how do we build an experiment and test with real-time data um, and information that never existed before? So everything is an experiment. You can't look backwards and take forecasts and trends and try and make like predictions. It's all real-time information. Welcome to AIGA's Design Adjacent. In this podcast, we explore topics and areas that intersect with design to explore the shifts in how we interact with each other and the world around us. Join AIGA's Executive Director, Benny F. Johnson, in conversation with industry leaders who are innovating and designing the future. Hello, and welcome to Design Adjacent, the podcast that explores the nexus of design today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny Johnson. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, entrepreneurship and innovation. Our guest today is Isaiah Seinfeld, the entrepreneur in residence at VF Venture Foundry. A bit about Isaiah. He's a proven startup veteran and innovation leader with a unique ability to really deeply empathize with both the user and the customer while creating that evasive big product vision. He is just as effective in the trenches with engineers and designers as he is at the table with partners and strategic executives. He does this through what we call an egoless approach to collaboration on both design, product innovation, business strategy, to help foster growth and ultimately to make people's lives better. Currently, Isaiah is entrepreneur and resident for VF Corps. You'll know them through their brands, Vans and North Face and Supreme and leads the newly formed venture platform, VF Foundry, an innovation capability that focuses on identifying, developing, and investing in new future-focused opportunity. I'm also pleased to say that Isaiah now sits as one of my new board members for the National Board of AIGA, serving to help us enhance the value and deepen the impact of design across all disciplines on business, society, and our collective future. So today I'd like to welcome and say thank you again to Isaiah for joining us for this episode of Design Adjacent. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is incredible. Well, it's really incredible to, to have you here. And I want to talk a bit about your start, both as a upstart and a startup person. But I really want to ask you about your journey. That's more of a love story. So when did you first fall in love with sneakers? Oh, gosh. <laughs> So recovering sneakerhead right now, the, the world's in an, an interesting place and I'm having to curb that intersection and love between culture and sneakers. But it really hit me as a young kid in the Jordan era. There were so many incredible players and moments happening. And these shoes were able to transcend culture and really be larger than life in the same way that Jordan was. And there's even documentaries on the different sneakers, particularly the AJ1 on right. Hulu called Unbanned, where it talks okay, about yeah. that um, intersection. But yeah, I think from there, really, all the other players as well, Shaquille O'Neal with Shaq Gnosis, and then you had Sean Kemp with the Kamikazes, right. you had <laughs> Iverson with the Question, and then all of the other incredible sneakers on the Barkley, you had the Pippins with the Uptempo. I mean... That was a beautiful era to get introduced as a just a kid around basketball and then sneaker culture and also at the same time music because I grew up in the early I grew up in the '90s and early 2000s and so right. it was it was you know I think 
first memorable pair of Jordans were probably around the nines or tens. But then as you get into it, you also start to look back at the ones and the Air Jordan ones. For those who don't know, the soles are also what influenced skateboarding culture and ultimately was adopted. And because they had the foundation and, and the way the sneaker was designed, it became part of that culture that started moving to music and all these other intersections. And it's just what a wonderful time to like get introduced to all of these things all at once <laughs> and then have it shape kind of the lens and perspective. So yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't have a really great way of untangling all of it. It's just this, right. this moment. And I think that's kind of how I look at it. It's that intersection. It's so interesting. You mentioned it. it's bringing back warm memories for me as well. Cause I grew up as a marketing person in that same space and time period. And one of the first brands that I worked for was a sporting goods store that was transitioning into sports and sneakers as culture in kind of this context of music and happening. And we were kind of combining these things together and mashing them up. And it wasn't really a recipe for it. it. Just kind of felt like it was the right thing to do. And we saw kind of the culture shift around lifestyle and sports as well. So as you were kind of having this relationship with sneakers, what really brought you to design? Oh, gosh. I've been a geek about everything growing up. Right. My wife kind of teases me um, and calls me Wikipedia because I like to, you know, go 10, 20 layers deep and understand how things were put together back in the day. And even now, I like to know the teams behind an album, who right. was the producer, the songwriters, like all of the liner notes or when you make a movie or... So when you look at logos or color composition, I was always curious about um, who made that? How did that come to be? You know, what was the thinking or the the pieces? And so I've always been curious. And I think the aesthetics and the combination of bringing those elements together, whether it was a pair of sneakers and the colorway, and then also with the team and the moments and how they tied all of that together, there was a thoughtfulness and I didn't really have right. to work for it at an early age. But then... Fast forward, get into high school. I'm playing in a bunch of bands, right. some crappy punk rock bands, touring, <laughs> skateboarding, doing things. And we're designing flyers and websites and merch and other things that come to life and starting to get more into the craft and the tools and realizing, oh, there are folks that actually make posters, gig posters or tour right. posters or merch. And they do this for a living and they actually get paid to do this or somebody designed that skateboard deck. And so just starting to peel back the layers and realize there's a whole profession and trade around this. <laughs> that is a long-winded answer to say, yeah, I was very curious at an early age and I didn't have language for it. But as I got older and continued to step in it and find myself in familiar spaces, it started to come to life in more of its practitioner and traditional form. What I find really interesting, and even as you're kind of unpacking it and thinking about it, at an early age, in an early part of your career, you had already dug into the fact that nothing's created by itself that we're all kind of these actions and responses and working together in a team. A lot of times in design, we see kind of the myth of the solo genius, right? The right. solo person working on it, but immediately having you come in and going, I want to know who's working on production, who's on keyboards, <laughs> who's on bass on the album, using that as, as a way in, it's playing up to the fact that all of these decisions, large and small, are made by this rich interaction with teams. Have you found that as you've gone in your career, have you been more or less inspired or disappointed by the power of teams? Oh, I am 100% all about teams. And more so, I think, because I've always shied away from the spotlight and wanted to be kind of the, the person behind the scenes that may or may not always get the recognition, but has been the linchpin for either developing the beat or 
the person who wrote half the songs or the unsung hero, but everyone needs to support or see a vision or be able to build things around it. So I very much identify with being that team member that is like heads down, catching all the bits and pieces. I was that for my bands where I found myself as the um, essentially tour manager, running production, doing the business side, making sure we got paid, the guarantees were in place so that we could go from one city to the other and had gas and be able to like eat um, (laughs) just the functions of it. But like knowing that all of those things have to come together. And so now that I'm in a different position much later in my career where I assemble teams, uh, things don't happen without collaboration. It can't happen in a vacuum. It's really, really true. And I think about those, those skills that you're bringing to bear, the kind of essential things that often go invisible, we sometimes refer to as the bridges and sewers work. No one gets excited about those things, but we all appreciate when they work and we appreciate even greater when they fail, right? And it, they're so essential to, to success. You've had the opportunity in the last few years to serve as entrepreneur in residence for organizations where you're kind of brought in to assemble teams and solve problems. What led you to that and what inspires you about that? Well, it's interesting. So traditionally, the term entrepreneur in residence in that particular role was something that you would normally find in Silicon Valley in the tech startup community where an entrepreneur or a founder would build or create a company and they would have brought it to market and scale and had just completed and made it public or had an exit. And investors, venture capitalists would want to invest in that next idea and want to work with that particular um, founder. And so traditionally, they would pull them in to work with the VC fund and help look at different businesses across their portfolio, give advice and really give them space and time to catch their breath, explore new opportunities and figure out the white space and areas that they want to build in next. And then the venture capitalists would then invest in that and be first in and you would have them incubate and like support that entrepreneur in between those phases. From there, you've seen the evolution of that relationship and that role. And there's been lots of corporations where they essentially are now looking to bring in entrepreneurs to help them explore what the future might look like and see what might be in the next five to 10 years. And so most recently I got to play that role for Nike. So I was brought in to explore funny enough, the intersection of culture and business and figure out what might be the future of sport and commerce for the company as we start to look out over the horizon and see what five to 10 years may be and where the new technologies and the emerging trends and how that all comes together in a meaningful way. So a little different in the sense than the traditional VC um, relationship because you're doing this for an organization and the goal is to to figure out how to leverage its gifts and use it as an accelerant. So right. the brand weight and full force of Nike and being able to find something that serves its consumer and that audience and plugging in is really a tour de force in, in its own way because you, you, you kind of have this unfair advantage of the brand weight where you go from normally this early stage company to right. quantum leaping to like full global scale which is, I think, the main differentiator between the two. But yeah, I very, very much love both sides of the relationship. And I think the one I'm currently in as an entrepreneur in residence with VF Venture Foundry right now leans more towards the traditional venture capital relationship where they're really wanting to be an investor and partner 
and um, I'm building on my own, whereas the latter I'm building within their ecosystem. So but it's interesting that, that I mean, using a kind of a objective external force to take stock of the internal kind of benefits and opportunities. Did you find that there was a, a healthy tension between pushing the ideas from your vantage point and those with, you take a large company like Nike or either VF who've had generations of success on top of success and you're the person pushing new innovations. How did you manage that tension? Well, I think it's like any creation, really. You have to understand what worked in the past and how those things came to be. And then when you're introducing new ideas or concepts or tugging at the edges and trying to make space for something creative or different, seeing how that translates. And I think with right. these particular groups, you know, they're different muscles. I would right. use it as like short distance running sprinters versus marathoners, completely right. different strategy and cadence and muscles and training plans. You know, startups, they're nimble, they're small, they have less on the line to risk and lose. They're able to adapt and recover much faster. Larger corporations, they're big ships. It's done by committee, takes a lot of planning, and right. they have much more to lose. So I think in those situations, we learned a lot from each other. More so on my side, where I'm really able to see from a global and $30, $40 billion perspective where these massive corporations, how they do their planning, forecasting, and then come to bring to life these incredible moments in real time and then also plan further out. Those were things that I really had an experience. But then at the same time, getting them to kind of break their mental model and take off the, the lens and the hat of, oh, okay, we're optimizing for a $40 billion company. How do we build an experiment and test with real-time data um, and information that never existed before. So everything is an experiment. You can't look backwards and take forecasts and trends and try and make like predictions. It's all real-time information and you're kind of teasing and playing and working with the consumer and have a really tight but micro feedback loop and right. really awesome, wonderful things can happen in those moments. And so I think we learned a lot from each other. At least that's my hope when engaging and working in those types of environments. It's really interesting as well as you're talking about that proximity to the customer and the problem and having that micro feedback loop. As creatives, we often are, you know, going out and solving problems. But I ask this question for you. What advice do you have to separate creating for the sake of creating and creating for meaning and solution? Well, I think they both have their place and sometimes they can come together in a really beautiful way. Right. And so I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. But I think, yeah, one is more problem solving oriented and you understand what the, the friction or the brief and what you're trying to actually work. And the other is just play and creative and there's no constraints and it's white canvas. And I, right. it brings me back to music or even art. I, I draw and doodle and I'm also I identify as like, so I, I'm a practitioner and heavily steeped. Everything I do starts with design, but I just so happen to also work in the tech industry and as a founder wear all the hats. So I also code and I do all the marketing and I'm also the finance guy, but I shouldn't be for very long. I fire myself <laughs> as fast as I can from most things, but I can do them all well enough. So right. I don't want to overextend or step across the line and say I'm a designer by any means, but everything I do is design forward and starts with that same curiosity and solving for the end user and making sure that we are really taking into account that experience and 
using insights and frictions to kind of lead the way. On the other side, there's no rules. So it's really pure expression. And I think that's the difference. It's not coming from a problem. It's more of an antidote or sorry, it's not an antidote. It's a vitamin. Um, Creativity is an outlet. It's a form of expression. It's a form of therapy. It's also just joy or sadness, but it's a motive and there's no right or wrong way to do it. So I think (laughs) sometimes if you get really good at one or the other, that becomes a brand in itself and then can lend or do or take legs and grow into something else. And just so happens to be solving a particular problem or addressing or enhancing or doing something that then fits more into the traditional problem solving human centered design thinking approach. Right. Right. Um, I know you did a, a bit of work advising Verizon on climate issues. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that, about the work you did there? Yeah, they have a program right now that's fo- focused on climate justice, where they've okay. invested and support or incubating several companies that are addressing real-time issues around climate change and then very sharply climate justice. And some of them go from interesting hardware and technology where they've created essentially surfboard fins for paddleboards and surfers to be a data point or entry for collection to aggregate water temperatures because in the the shallow coastal areas, we don't have enough data and tracking around that. And the ocean is a huge signal and indicator of the planet's health and also kind of gives us early signals on how things will happen. Other companies in there range from um, launching recently satellites on one of the um, last uh, SpaceX launches where they are creating new satellite technology to map hotspots to be able to detect and prevent forest fires much earlier and sooner. So very important work. Folks much smarter than myself, all tackling interesting pieces. But I've also worked with Berkeley Blockchain and have spent the last five years working around emerging technology. And one of the things that I've done well that I've learned over the time with Nike and storytelling is really taking these very complicated, complex systems and reducing them down to a very elegant, simple explanation, and then translating that into more human-centered design approach on UI UX. And if you're pulling all of that data together, is it serving the end user where, you know, these are scientists or climate change researchers or folks in like on the front lines fighting fires, or does that also get then packaged and served back up to other stakeholders or politicians or those that are creating policy around how we start to govern and move and support and fight climate change on you know, the state, local, government, national, international level. So making sure that we not only source and aggregate and like thoughtfully package up that information, but then make it digestible for different groups of folks so that it then all of a sudden becomes a one-to-many push versus um, a one-to-one design. And so you have a lot of really incredibly smart um, individuals and just kind of helping shepherd what that human design approach may be, translating them into product insights and then design briefs in different ways that it should be translated so people can use it. What, you know, I always take away from our conversations and and hearing you explore these spaces is the way you kind of expand upon a design base and are pulling these other items in. And, and before, you know, you talked a little bit about this no, notion of signals, kind of things that are giving you a sense of direction. What are some of the resources that you look to 
to help you with inputs as to what the future is going to be? What are things that you draw from to get sense of these signals? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a really great question. Personally, I, I think I'm just curious. So right. I think I'm lucky in the sense serendipity plays a bit into it that I've been building and found myself surrounded at the the edge where emerging technologies and trends are already. And then having been exposed to it, I'm able to, on a day-to-day basis, see when something diverges or cuts away from the usual path where all of a sudden there's this new thing that's happening. Like, And once it makes its way to the mainstream, you have a little more adoption or curiosity. And I've maybe been playing or seeing it for you know one to three years. So there's this adoption curve. Right. And um, some of the places that I go to on a day-to-day basis is like Product Hunt, where founders and new companies are launching new businesses and new technologies or platforms or ranges from hardware, but it's producthunt.com. And it's kind of like the Reddit for the front page of new things being built every day. And so you can kind of see different trends and then also take that and triangulate it against where all of the venture capitalists are also putting their bets and placing their money around white space opportunities. So you'll start to see a trend right now. There's a, a big interesting um, curiosity around the metaverse where all of a sudden now, you know, if you look at Apple and all these other large corporations where they're looking at augmented reality, Snap developing their glasses, Google had their first step into this with Google Glass, but now they're also doubling down. Like this mixed reality is, is very much coming and is already here in some form or fashion with Snap and some of the like filters we use on Instagram or Snapchat or different ways. But you start to see that, then you see the culmination of like digital goods and NFTs and right. rise of digital art and crypto kitties and all kinds of other things that are really testing the market and consumer adoption and understanding and learning how we as a society want to play with these items and how we would use them for practical use cases, whether you're in construction and you want to be able to, instead of having to tear out the foundation and look at the water pipes below ground, you can now use augmented reality to see the structure and the formation and all the piping and everything else. Like there's a lot of different use cases and applications, whether it's surgery and the medical field, it's mind blowing, right? You can expand and click into different segments, but I think that's really the fun thing about innovation is you, you start to see these trends, you see where we're investing our time and energy. And it's normally a new technology that opens a door So you use augmented reality and you could say, okay, that's great. We're now going to see how many products we can bring from the physical world into the digital world and how cool would it be to see that in Fortnite? Or you'd start to overlay it over healthcare and then you see more practical use cases or you the construction industry or you name it X, Y, Z. And you start to see how those ripples and changes will come and the pace of that industry and some of the other bits and pieces that come with that to all of a sudden start to pull together a vision and a potential like just gauge on what might be and you can kind of squint right. and see and then you start to like hypothesize and guess and you can see like okay certain amount of dollars certain companies certain amount of like smart folks i think we've recently seen a major exit with all of these large startups like doordash uber airbnb lyft all of these companies where they had all of this talent locked up because they were vesting go public. Now you're going to see a lot of smart folks and individuals leave these companies and go make new things. 
And right. so that's uh, another catalyst. So it's right. very interesting. It's right. Because they have that mix that you strive for opportunity, resource, you know, an agency. And you put those right. together and you're right. It opens up the door. Isaiah, as we talk, you're kind of the living embodiment of design adjacency. So in that sense, we talk about being design adjacent. What advice would you have for emerging creative leaders in the future? Right. So we've got people who are working in creative forms now. But what, what advice do you have as a kind of breakthrough where we've seen design traditionally to where we see the future? Yeah. Interestingly, I always like to look to the past because okay. a lot of the things aren't new. And what I mean by that is if we look backwards and we look at those who made the jump from print to digital and how they evolved and what were the major implications and what did they learn from those moments and what were difficult and you know what were the benefits and what stayed true, I think that in itself would give you a very quick glance at what might be when you start to look at picking on mixed reality, because we were we were talking and discussing that. What does that medium look like? And how does that translate when you're designing the digital and physical world together and taking design principles and all of the things that you would going from a physical like print medium to digital, whether it's on a tablet, computer, your phone, to now all of a sudden it sits in front of you in space and the intersection of like dimensions of your room or in an open environment, how does that translate? But I think there are a lot of things that we can look backwards and learn from and just being mindful and taking that, that knowledge and folks that had actually lived and learned it, it's incredibly valuable. So, and a lot of those folks are now in leadership positions and have excelled and gone on and paved the way. And I think it goes back to this idea of stewardship. So paying that backwards and, you know, we're living through these moments much faster at right. a, a quicker pace as well. So we're seeing new technologies and new moments and new things happen on a higher frequency. So I think this next wave of designers and um, makers will be even more resilient because they're they're just seeing and learning and taking it all in at, at a much faster pace. All right. So as we think about the future, what's capturing your imagination now to give you hope? Well, so at the alarming rate that all of these problems are coming to a head, our technologies are also increasing and unlocking just incredible potential. And my hope is that we as humanity and like people can come together to solve these problems and put aside some of the other differences. But this is about to get strange and this is a little French, but also kind of current. And I don't know ethically how this works, but if we don't change something, we're on a, we're on a bad path. I think we've all seen the reports recently with the three degrees Celsius and the global warming projections and, you know, where we are and how we have to make very, very, very drastic changes. So if you look at CRISPR, which is DNA sequencing and modification, and again, I don't, again, I'm, this is not my field, so I'm right. not qualified to speak to it, but it's, it's a new technology that has all kinds of ethical questions around it, but just hypothetically brainstorming out loud. So forgive me. If we were to take a tree and punch up the carbon intake, and be able to clean up the some of the greenhouse effects from the carbon footprint from too many companies and make that now a way to filter and cleanse our air and reduce some of the impact that we've had. That, in theory, is something plausible, but I don't know if I, like, that's something you can't t- get wrong because maybe you create a super tree and it sucks out all the oxygen and now we have, like, we're in an even worse position. So there are definitely major implications. But 
again, quantum computing, where you can now something that took hundred thousand years to like solve a math problem, a computer can do. And I forget the actual number. I'm going to Google it right now, just for the sake of conversation. But Google essentially proved quantum supremacy, which took this idea of like a hundred thousand year problem. And it's now able to do it in like less than 10 days, which is insane. So if you take that computational power and leverage it and wield it for good, we can hopefully start to untangle some of the mess that we've made. Right. And that makes me incredibly optimistic because I, I believe deep down at our core, we have more in common than we do different. And we're all aligned in taking care of our families and neighbors and friends. And so true. We, at the end of the day, can do this. And so my hope is that as the technology catches up and it's speeding and accelerating, that we can actually get in front of these problems and start to reverse some of them. So I'll ask this question. And I know how much teams and collaboration have meant to you and even in our conversation here. So if you were to put together your starting five for a team for innovation, I'm going to make it fun for you. So you won't have names, but what types of roles and personality traits would you want to have as your top five? Who do we need to solve the problem? Definitely visionary, like people who can see potential and then outside the box, start to imagine things in a completely wild and new imaginative way that just isn't obvious for most folks that they can take disparate concepts and start to reimagine what could be. And then I think a very, very, very strong, pragmatic realist that then takes the, the altitude that the visionary wants to fly at and brings them down to a level that is a safe altitude where you actually find this sweet spot with harmony. So you have folks that they really balance each other. There's harmony between the two, the the realist and the pragmatist that's like hyper-focused on like what may or could go wrong can get stuck sometimes. They'll have to pull up because the visionary will fly too high. Right. They'll pull the visionary down. All of a sudden you're like at the right altitude and it's a very great sweet spot. Then you have like surrounding teams that are really complementary to different skill sets that are accelerants that really start to have this additive or um, explosive support and a momentum behind the team. So you now have these two pieces that are have the right amount of tension. Then you start to look at the blind spots and start to like backfill whether depending on what white space we're, we're looking at, <laughs> if it's more designed for it and the visualizations and all of the pieces and components that you, communication is key because it requires mass adoption or if it's more technical and, and also phase matters in this. I'm, this exercise is really hard for me because I'm like, well, the team changes as it grows. Yeah, no, Are we like- early on? Is this day one? If it's day one, formation is very different. You kind of like go and centralized versus decentralized. You know, and, and the dynamism is what I wanted us you to be able to share with the audience because that's exactly what it is challenging. But I think what yeah. you said is it's living, right? And it's right. kind of identifying those core components and keeping a, a systems and a gut check as we go along. So no, this, this yeah. is that's a, a wonderful, wonderful answer and incredible, well, I hope to be incredibly useful perspective for our listeners as they think about their own challenges, both, you know, incremental or epic in scale, right? These are all things that we consider. But Isaiah, it's been incredible having you join me and have this conversation. I think about, yeah, I want to thank you for being my first 
design adjacent a love story that we follow through from sneakers to climate, from design to innovation, seeing how both aesthetic craft, strategic advantage, and ultimately lining that all up to have impact on the world around you. I just thank you again for sharing with us today and applaud the work you've been doing. Once again, thank you for joining me for Design Adjacent today. Thank you. No, this has been an honor. I really just love being in the community and appreciate the opportunity to get to tell my story and participate. So thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Adjacent, a podcast about the nexus of design today and tomorrow. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Li Shan Huang. Until next time.